G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Counting down the sleeps to Christmas now, aren't we? Often safe and sound, kids tucked in tight, safe at night for most of us. Many of us will attend church on Christmas Day or on Christmas Eve. We can talk about the Jesus of Christmas without much hindrance in our workplaces or even at the shopping centres, out in public. But there are nations around the world where Christians put their lives, their families and their employment at risk if they outwardly celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day. Now, in nations where where Christians are persecuted, Christmas has no gifts, no holidays, no lavish food, no celebration, all for fear that prying eyes will alert authorities. And in some nations we'll talk about today, Christmas triggers a heightened awareness of safety personally and for places where churches gather together. In fact, it's a popular season, as you'll know, as Christmas and Easter become popular seasons even for the bombing of churches. So a sort of important conversation today about what's going on at Christmas time in other parts of the world. Our special guest through this coming hour, Elizabeth Kendall, international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, this is an important time of year for a discussion around the sorts of things we'll talk about, and it won't be all Christmassy sounding discussion. And uh, some listeners thinking this is a happy Christmas segment uh, might be a little bit disappointed because uh, Christmas for a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world becomes one of the heightened danger times of their lives. Uh, you've been aware of this for many years. Well, that's right, and I think that the uh, the danger is always uh, greatest where Christians are a vulnerable minority, where they are not really protected by the government, where their rights are not protected, and those who would seek to kill them know that they can do so with impunity. It's often a, 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 a peak time for terror in countries like Indonesia uh, and Egypt, but also in places like Pakistan, uh, especially vulnerable over Christmas and Easter, But increasingly, it's becoming a a situation where terror can strike in in Western Europe. So we've seen we've seen a number of terror attacks over recent years. Nothing quite like what you might see, you know, in a in a like an Islamic country. But we've seen the bus. There was a uh, no, it was a truck, a truck running through a German market. A uh, you know, smaller scale terror attacks. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if they're on the increase this year as well. There's been some thought that Islamic terrorism has had a little bit of a sort of a low level uh, time through the COVID crisis. Any thoughts around the fact that uh, there'll be people who have terror intent 
who have not been uh, lying low. And of course, uh, maybe it's just because we haven't been hearing these things reported around the world because COVID has dominated the headlines. But has there even been a, a sort of a lower level impression about uh, terror violence in the in this past year? Well, I would suggest that in this past year, 2020, there are two regimes in particular that have exploited, I believe, really exploited the COVID-19 crisis and the, um, the uh, almost obsessive attention that the US election year gets, which happened to coincide with the, with the COVID crisis. Right through this year, they've exploited that to advance their agenda, and that is China. So the Chinese Communist Party has really put its foot on the accelerator this year to sinicize China. This is something, an internal uh, uh, thing to really, um, to sinicize the whole country, to bring the country in line with their united front uh, ideology. China has made great gains this year. The other regime is Turkey. Turkey Neo-Ottoman Turkey has put their foot on the accelerator this year. Once again, they've really benefited, as has China done, by the fact that the whole world, well, the Western world, at least, is looking elsewhere. The whole, you know, all the media is looking at uh, COVID reports, COVID counts, the US election. And so Turkey has been able to advance itself in northern Syria, in Libya, all across the eastern Mediterranean, and that includes a military build-up on Cyprus. They've advanced through the South Caucasus and uh, taken their jihadis into you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, um, Artsakh region, the, and, and fought the Armenians there. And uh, they have made huge gains. So they've taken advantage of this cloud that everybody's under, and they've put their foot on the accelerator. And that's been one of the things I think I've noticed so profoundly during 2020. Uh, let's have a little focus here for a few moments longer on China, because these sorts of words that you're using are not typically reported, I don't think, uh, in too much of the mainstream media. The idea of a sinicizing of China and uh, if we bring into that all of the uh, I- issues around trade that uh, so many Australians are now beginning to suffer from, whether it's the wine industry or talk about the beef industry, even the talk now about the lamb industry uh, being under threat with the Chinese, uh, the exports that we do to China. But this idea of sinicizing China, becoming every everyone getting on the same page, and this is the same page with communist China, um, this is something that we that we don't often appreciate, but there is something in here that has its issue with religious groups. Uh, if we talk about the Uyghurs or uh, Christians coming under more intense persecution in China because of uh, this sinicizing, what are your thoughts around the the developments there and what it means for religious groups like Christians? Well, this is all about China making sure there is no internal dissent, no protests, nothing inside the country to get in the way of their global ambitions. So China is an empire, you know, and it's ruled by by an emperor, by a sort of a Mandarin class. The, the Chinese Communist Party is just a modern a modern version of this Mandarin sort of class. 
And it's a huge empire. It covers um, many different ethnic groups, different faiths. But now that they're looking to really um, have this sort of a global domination that they seek, they want to make sure they have no internal troubles. And you regularly hear, uh, although it's really gone out of the news under the COVID and US election you know, cloud, you often hear re- reference to the Chinese uh, United Front Work Party or the United Front this or the United Front that. Well, the idea is to have everyone in China as a united front, so there's no dissent. Now, we've seen them how the Chinese Communist Party has worked regarding the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. They have rounded them up, particularly the men. Uh, they think well over a million Uyghur men are in concentration camps. Uh, they, they're being called re-education camps, where they are re-educated to love the Chinese Communist Party and to put away their old Muslim ways and Uyghur ways. Children have been taken from their parents and put into re-education schools, uh, boarding school type things. And uh, this is all to make to try to bring the Uyghurs into this united front with all the rest of China. They've done the same in Tibet. For some reason, this has got much, much less media attention than the than the incredibly cruel work out in uh, Xinjiang. But um, in Tibet, there's this, um, the, this massive um, monastery. It's the largest Tibetan Buddhist or largest Buddhist monastery in the world. And it's completely surrounded all through the valleys and hills with these little sort of shacks, little like dormitories that that the people will go and stay in so they can study at the monastery. Well, uh, you know, the Chinese government has gone in and bulldozed half of it. And they've put their own administrators into this world-leading Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And for some reason, this has got almost no attention. So the same thing is happening in Tibet. The intention is to make sure all the Tibetans join the United Front. (laughs) And of course, we've seen this year the moves into Inner Mongolia. So this year the Chinese Communist Party said from now on or starting next year, the Mongolian children in Inner Mongolia, which is in you know, the northern part of, of China, uh, will learn in uh, Mandarin. They will learn the language of the Chinese people. They will learn the, the history that we give them. And the idea is to, over the next few years, uh, bring the Mongolians, whether they like it or not, into this united front. And uh, so it's, it's really, really extremely, it's repressive, terribly repressive and not getting much cover, coverage at all. Elizabeth, oftentimes when we're talking about persecution of Christians, we're talking about one religious flavour persecuting another. And uh, whether it's Christians being persecuted or Buddhists being persecuted and typically by the Islamists. But when we're talking China, communist China, there's a outlawing of every religious persuasion and communism takes this all-powerful approach uh, to dominating and minimizing the impact of religious groups. And, of course, we're interested in Christianity, but uh, but that's mm. where the, the Chinese communists, they're just trying to outlaw everybody. Is that the case? 
It is, and they're trying. Well, they're trying to bring everyone into their mold, so that everyone is part of this united front. We all stand together behind the Chinese Communist Party, and I mean, Christians are affected by all of this. So, in in Xinjiang, in, in, for example, where the Muslim Uyghurs live in in the west of China, there are Christians there. They're converts from Islam. And uh, they have a hard enough time living amongst the Muslim Uyghurs. But now they, the biggest threat to them is actually the Chinese Communist Party. So it's going to drive the uh, Christian converted, Christian convert Uyghurs uh, from small unregistered house churches even more underground. Tibet is probably the most repressive place for Christians in all of China. There's been very few converts there, and they're deep, deep underground. Well, you know, they're going to be uh, even more at risk now. And as for Inner Mongolia, well, there's been an incredible work uh, of God amongst Mongolians, and the church is growing in Mongolia, and I believe in Inner Mongolia as well. So the, the Christians who are Mongolian will also be impacted or you know by the by this move of the Communist Party. Now the the thing with China is the majority of Christians of course are not Uyghurs or Tibetans or Mongolians. They're Han Chinese. They belong to the Han Chinese majority and they're all across the country and they exist at every level of society from the poorest of the poor rural farmers right through to doctors and lawyers. And so how on earth is the Chinese Communist Party going to bring them all in line? Mm -hmm. Well, what they're doing is they are using their artificial intelligence, their facial recognition cameras, their social credit system, they're bulldozing churches, they're outlawing unregistered churches, they're reducing the number of registered churches down by at least half, just bulldozing them. They're also getting rid of everything that's visibly Christian. So the the churches that are allowed to survive are losing their crosses, their steeples, anything that identifies them on the skyline or in the streetscape as Christian. So, And Christians are going to start increasingly finding because they have bad social credit, all determined by the artificial intelligence and, and the cameras, facial recognition cameras, that they won't be able to buy a train ticket. They won't be able to get their children into university. They won't be able to travel overseas. They can't get their mother into the best hospital. Things are going to start to get exceptionally difficult for Chinese Christians in the coming years. Well, it's what Christianity looks like under an authoritarian government system, whether it is a religious oppression or whether it is a political oppression, as is what is happening in China. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. There's nothing like a dose of reality as to what Christians are facing around the world when we have a guest like Elizabeth Kendall, who is with us this hour, international religious liberty analyst and advocate. We are talking, in a sense, Christmas around the world where Christians and Christmas is really being outlawed. Uh, We'll talk some more in just a few moments. Let's take a call, though. 
Uh, Mike is on the line from Launceston in Tasmania. Hello, Mike. Welcome. Yes, good morning. Uh, you know, I, I prayed in the past that President Xi would have an encounter like Nebuchadnezzar had where God judged him until he lifted his eyes to heaven and, and worshipped the God of heaven. I think he might need that type of experience. And, you know, he, he's a victim. He's not the enemy. Um, he's like so anyway. Uh, Mike, great thought, because there are some biblical alignments to uh, the likes of Nebuchadnezzar and other leaders as well. Uh, Elizabeth, your thoughts for Mike? Well, the first thing to say is you are absolutely correct, um, Mike, by pointing out that G is not the enemy, because um, as we know in Ephesians chapter 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So uh, Xi Jinping is a human being created by God in the image of God for relationship with God and to reflect the image of God into the world. And we, we should be praying for him. We should uh, never cease to pray for him. And uh, I think the case of Nebuchadnezzar is a very good one. I think whatever happens, uh, God is going to do something amazing in China. I believe he's actually setting the stage for China to be a world, a world leader in the future and that the gospel will go forth from China in the future. And whether it's because President Xi has a Nebuchadnezzar-type experience or because uh, God uh, cuts down that proud tree as he promised to cut down Pharaoh, just as he cut down Assyria when they became proud, he says he cut them down and uh, humbled them. Uh, God, I believe, is, is, is already setting the stage for the rise of a very different sort of China in the years or decades to come. And I think it's, a, it's something we can have great hope about. But until that day comes, we must not cease to pray for the church in China and for the Chinese government. Mike in Launceston, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. We're really only just a couple of minutes out from the news. I wanted to pick up on something that we began to talk about before that last break uh, when we discussed China and the way that their surveillance system is being used to... Uh, to impose that authoritarian uh, surveillance and control on the people. And just to raise the, the point here, Elizabeth, and for a comment from you, uh, we have the same technology here in Australia, and uh, we're perhaps not seeing the extent that China is using that to control the people, but that's not beyond the possibility here in Australia, is it? Uh, well, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Um, anything can can happen, and that's why we need to be prayerful for our own country and not to take things for granted. Uh, what China is doing all around the world, though, is they are essentially giving away uh, their technology, their well, their 5G technology, their Huawei systems and everything, essentially for free or at a hugely reduced cost, I think, for free with a lot of very poor countries in order to collect all the data. So they collect the data for their artificial intelligence. Um, artificial intelligence is just a data cruncher, and the more data you have, the better it is. And what they plan to do is to just revolutionize, revolutionize artificial intelligence in the realm of healthcare in particular, and to have the whole world dependent on them. 
for the information and for everything that they can do. So the whole world will be dependent upon them. But yes, we should never actually take what we have for granted and to think that just because we're free today that we'll be free forever. Uh, we need to be praying for our government. We need to be alert. We need to be watching politics, watching society, speaking the truth, and never taking things for granted. Elizabeth Kendall, as we move into this part of our conversation, let's come back to Christmas in places like Indonesia, because in Indonesia there's been a a number of uh, really uh, very, uh, well, disturbing situations, and Christmas terror is one of those things that uh, a lot of churches are on alert for. What are your thoughts about what's developing in Indonesia? Yes, well, I can actually remember when I first joined the World Evangelical Alliance many years ago and one of the first big terror attacks after the 9-11 terror attacks was a a multiple church bombing in Indonesia. I think 10 churches were bombed at uh, midnight, during midnight mass. And there is a history of Christmas violence. The police usually come out and the military comes out en masse to guard churches over Christmas because of the threat. But I think this year it's going to be particularly serious. Um, There there was a terrible, terrible uh, attack in central Sulawesi just uh, recently. And uh, I think this might actually bode very ill for what what might be ahead of us. So it was Friday the 27th of November and a group of about 10 Islamic militants Uh, belonging to the Islamic State-aligned Eastern Indonesian Mujahideen, descended on this village in central Sulawesi. Now, people who have been praying for Indonesia for a long time or following, you know, religious liberty issues will recognise that name, central Sulawesi, because it really was uh, one of the key spots uh, that suffered terribly during the big jihad that went from about 1998 and into 2001 and 2002, uh, the, the uh, jihad in eastern Indonesia. And Sulawesi is part of the eastern Indonesia's uh, Dutch uh, colonised area, the Dutch Spice Islands. Uh, they were long majority Christian, but transmigration from Java has increased the Muslim population. So it's now a very delicate spot, and they've really been grateful to have peace for a long time since the end of that Islamic Jihad. But it's still a delicate spot, and there are still terrorists hunkered down in the hills who will commit terror attacks every now and again, small-scale usually killing a policeman or throwing a grenade into a police station or something. But on Friday the 27th of November, they attacked this little village, Lamban Tongoa, which is about 90 kilometres south of the provincial capital of Palu, and they targeted a Salvation Army mission outpost. So this is a place where the Salvation Army Indonesia had decided to plant a church and build up a community amongst the, the villagers. And uh, the, the Mujahideen came in and they fill, killed four adult men, all Salvation Army workers. So they knew exactly what they were doing. They killed them, they burned their homes, and then they also burned the, the 
the building that was used as their church that they built to use as their church. So it was a very targeted attack. They were beheaded. One was fully beheaded. Another was almost fully beheaded. The other two had their throats slit and were burned. It was shocking. And they have left behind widows and children and believers who are traumatised. And about 150 families have fled the area. As now, you my say, suspicion, sorry. I was going to yes. say, as you say, when there are these, and let's, let's not under-represent uh, this, but when you say a small attack, will small attacks continue to keep mm. uh, the Islamist cause in the headlines? And, and uh, this is an interesting thing because, you know, we, we do get a lot of uh, media exposure typically when there's a large attack, but these small attacks continue to do that as well. And those things that have happened in other nations, and I wonder whether there's any connection here or whether there's this sort of, uh, you know, international way of uh, of uh, virtue signalling in that sense of, of, uh, of saying, you know, attacks are on the rise because of things that have been going on in France uh, with a yes. move towards anti-blasphemy, all sorts of things here that seem to go hand in hand in the lead up to Christmas. Well, that's the way I see it. I see it as very possibly being connected to what has happened in France in in recent months. So people might remember that on the 16th of October, uh, an Islamist beheaded a school teacher, Samuel Patty, in broad daylight in a Paris suburban street, just beheaded him uh, for blasphemy, for having taught his during the course of a discussion, a special class teaching on France's uh, freedom of speech, you know, uh, regulations and freedom of speech, you know, practice, uh, he said, I'm going to show you the cartoons that caused, you know, all the trouble. Now, I'm assuming, and I think he was talking about, the, the cartoons that started the big anti-blasphemy uh, riots in 2005-2006, the Dutch the Danish cartoons, which were incredibly mild. Most of them didn't even represent Muhammad at all, but were used by uh, Arab groups and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation to stir up uh, this incredible sentiment and riots and violence ahead of an attempt by the Organization of Islamic Conference to outlaw blasphemy internationally. Now, it sort of hasn't really taken off but I get the feeling it's going to be taking off a little bit more now. So Emmanuel Macron, he was really deeply, deeply disturbed by this. And he came out very, very strongly. And he said, we are not going to tolerate this in France. In France, we have freedom of expression. We do not behead people in the street for blasphemy in France. It's not going to happen here. And uh, and uh, anyway, Muslims responded to that. They said France is Islamophobic. And Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey said, oh dear, President Macron needs to get a mental assessment. He's obviously lost his mind. And, and lots of stuff sort of started percolating. There were riots and street protests in Pakistan that continued until Pr- Prime Minister Imran Khan agreed to boycott French products. And just after this, at about the same time, one of Indonesia's most famous uh, 
uh, Islamist agitators came home from a three-year self-imposed exile in Saudi Arabia. Rizek Shihab, he came home on the 10th of November to launch his anti-blasphemy crusade. Now, this is the same Islamic cleric that, that led the protests that put Ahok in jail, the, the, the uh, Chinese Christian who was running for governor of Jakarta and would have won it if Rizak Shahab hadn't seen that he was charged with blasphemy and locked up and taken out of the race. He's come back to a hero's welcome to preach against blasphemy in Indonesia. And within days, there was this killing. Within weeks, there was this terrible killing in central Sulawesi. And I have a, t- I, I have a sneaking suspicion that they're linked that there's this simmering anger about preventing blasphemy and that the uh, Islamic Eastern Indonesian Mujahideen decided they would show they're still around and they would go out and kill a bunch of blasphemers. You need to remember that even just any, any Christian declaration to say Jesus is Lord is blasphemy. To say Muhammad is not the, the final prophet is a blasphemy. Uh, to say the Quran is not perfect is blasphemy. Uh, so I would suggest that they so, just might be related. Elizabeth, when anyone speaks out, it's considered to be, if it's a criticism of anything Islamic, it's considered to be blasphemous. And so you've got Western people or people who are aligned with a, a different style of values who would be speaking out and and that's been, that's considered to be like an incitement. And so uh, there's right. a, a leading then to Muslims uprising. And then, uh, then if you don't actually toe the line and allow Muslims to have that authoritarian influence, that fear-driven influence that comes from terror... Uh, then you're 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 actually appeasing or trying to appease uh, that uh, that dreadful uh, scenario of of killings and beheadings. I mean, this idea of appeasement. If you don't say anything, uh, you are you you're going along with what's happening. But then, if you do speak up, then you're inciting uh, more Muslim violence. It's like a lose lose, isn't it? Everyone so loses. I think people. Yep, I think you just have to. There are some fights you have to engage in. You know, there, there, sometimes you just can't walk away because, as you said, you walk away, you lose. And um, sometimes you just have to achieve peace through a battle. You have to fight it. And we and the West has to take a stand here. I, I think Macron was absolutely right to take a stand here. And uh, he's been criticised for it. Uh, I've been criticised for saying that as well. So I got some criticism for saying, for suggesting that it's fine to ridicule other people's religions. But um, that's not what I was saying at all. But um, I think you have to make a stand. Otherwise, uh, the Islamic forces just continue. And, you know, uh, Rizek Shihab, this Indonesian Islamist who's just come home now since the blasphemy uh, started all stirring, stuff started stirring in France, he's now come home. He gave a speech on the 15th of November where he directed his, his words to the, pre, to, to the president, President uh, Joko Wadodo, and he said to the president, uh, to the government and to the police, I say to you, if you do not want what happened in France, 
where someone who insulted the prophet was beheaded, then we implore you, follow up on reports of blasphemers. If the police fail to process accusations of blasphemy, then don't blame the Muslims when a head is found on the streets. Mm -hmm. And it was two weeks later that the Salvation Army workers were beheaded in central Sulawesi. And it appears, Elizabeth, that these things mm -hmm. are intensifying now in the lead-up to this Christmas. And and if we go beyond uh, Indonesia and uh, to places like Pakistan, there's been more rallies in Pakistan and anti-blasphemy riots in Egypt. Uh, how are those linked, do you think? Well, I think, that, I think they're all linked. I think this, you know, Islamic organisations are very good at taking an incident and using it to fuel their bonfire, you know, to, to uh, incite Islamic rage and Islamic zeal, you know, all throughout the Muslim world. So uh, they did that with the Danish cartoons in 2005 and into 2006, and I think they're going to be doing it again now. And people like Rizek Shihab, they will use it to, to make themselves powerful and to reinvent themselves as the great defenders of Islam. And, of course, what this does is it stirs up all this Islamic zeal amongst the masses. It makes the Islamic masses all the more hostile towards Christians and towards churches. And to see this rising now in December in countries like Indonesia and Pakistan and Egypt where there have been terror attacks on churches, where there have been riots and, and uh, killings and terror attacks over Christmas, Christmas massacres. Uh, it's really deeply concerning. And I think we need to be praying that God will just put his, his protective uh, wing to take the, the imagery of the Psalms. You know, he will put his protective wing over his people because um, I don't like the look of it. I really don't like the look of it. Wow. And so... Uh, interestingly, because when we talk about all of this uh, anger that is growing and anti-blasphemy laws, uh, these are often uh, connected with anti-conversion laws and mm. ways that laws can be weaponized uh, to be able to uh, force control. And uh, interestingly, and uh, we're running out of time, and I don't want to lose the focus necessarily from what's happening internationally in the lead up to Christmas and the idea that everybody's on edge, but we've got these conversion laws now coming into even your state of Victoria. Uh, these are not religious conversion laws, but uh, an LGBT-driven uh, form of conversion law, the idea of weaponizing laws so that people can drag others before the courts. And let's not uh, think that, you know, that the LGBT movement might be wanting to behead people, but the same principle is at work here. I wonder if you've got any thoughts around that, Elizabeth? Oh, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. I'm so glad you've raised that, Neil, because, you know, the similarities are between these laws and Islamic laws is absolutely overwhelming. So if you if you look at the West today and the like the neo Marxist ideology that has taken a grip of Western civilization, basically if you want to come out of that, so if you're a a, uh, a homosexual person and you want to come out of that movement you've been in, 
I tell you what, they're going to charge you with apostasy. They won't charge you with it, but they will essentially accuse you of it. And they won't let you do it. And some of the homosexuals who have, who have become, who have spoken out about coming out of that lifestyle and about finding wholeness and healing in Christ, uh, they have been, uh, they have been bullied. They have been deplatformed on the, on the, you know, social media. They have been bullied. They have been threatened like you wouldn't believe. It's just like apostasy to do that. And same with the, the, with this great movement of the detransitioners, uh, young people who transitioned, you know, because they were born in the wrong body. So they tr- transitioned from female to male. And then, you know, 10 years down the track, they're de- detransitioning. If they dare to speak, they are treated like apostates. And the same goes for blasphemy. If you or I dare to speak against these ideologies, which have quickly become the state ideology, you are essentially being accused of blasphemy. You're being treated like a blasphemer. And the law that's in the parliament right now in Victoria um, is, is the most radical law, I think, that has ever been brought up in Australia. It will criminalise even just conversations that could cause harm to someone who overhears them. Mm. Uh, if the suggestion is that their sexuality or their transgender status is not affirmed, it doesn't matter if you're a parent, it doesn't matter if they asked you for help because they want to change. Um, you can be charged, you can get get up to 10 years jail for your blasphemy. Elizabeth, let me ask you about something that I've not even raised with anyone because uh, not everyone has the capacity to respond uh, on this level here. But when you have what appears to be happening in Victoria, the idea that sexuality has become elevated to the level of a religious pursuit and uh, it's become sacred, and uh, therefore, laws must be around that to protect. And, you know, we talk about preserving religious freedom, but here's, here's a sexuality that's being elevated to the level of a religious pursuit and then demands for levels of freedom there that others might not be a critic of. Any thoughts around this idea of sexuality being elevated, given that you're a religious liberty analyst and uh, what seems to be happening in the state of Victoria? Well, I sort of believe that it it is very much religious. I mean, the whole Marxist uh, and the neo-Marxist worldview is based on the premise that there is no God. Now, people like Richard Dawkins and others used to say, oh, I just believe that I'm not, you know, I've got nothing to do with religion to have no religion. But of course it does. It's a ridiculous cop-out, that sort of statement. This is a religious movement. And, you know, the fact of the matter is they have all the religious trappings, the way they, uh, the way they come together with their laws, with their ideology, with it elevated to the point of it being sacred, as you said. So to leave it is apostasy. To criticize it is blasphemy. And it is going to be protected with all the zeal that an, an, as an Islamist would want to protect Islam. Uh, and it's very, very disturbing and uh, it's going to be very interesting. The law professor whose work I read, Neil Foster, he's, he really felt that the, um, that the law would not go through this year. 
the um, conversion and suppression bill would not go through the Victorian Parliament this year. And he said this is good because people will have time to talk about it and think about it. The Liberal Party's been pushing for it to, to have a rest and to let people talk about it, but the Labor government of Daniel Andrews is determined to push it through before Christmas. So this is something that's actually very, very serious for the state of Victoria. It will impact churches. There'll be, I can guarantee there will be predatory gay activists seeking their first conviction before you know it uh, if this law is passed. All right. Well, that is a little aside uh, from the discussion around religious persecution that's happening so much around the world and these things intensifying in the lead up to Christmas and uh, let's hope that uh, you're not a prophet here, Elizabeth Kendall, and that there is going to be uh, dreadful terror attacks around the world but it does appear that the scene is being set for Christmas time being a time when Christians will be targeted and uh, in different nations like Indonesia or Pakistan uh, Egypt, as you've mentioned, a number of nations. And then, of course, uh, to expand all of that, to talk about the imposition of that authoritarian governance in communist China and the idea of how you actually suppress and make sure people are on your side, a sinocizing of the people and making sure there are no outbreaks and unrest before you advance further. Uh, powerful insights once again today. And, Elizabeth, we have run out of time but let me just say that there's two books that you've written. I always like to give these two book titles because lots of listeners may well want to get a hold of uh, some of the things that you've been writing about. And uh, a couple of years, or two or three years since your, uh, your last book was released, it was called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. And then there was your first book called Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and that offering biblical response to persecution and existential threat. Now, they're not light reading, uh, but they're, they're deep and uh, they're meaningful reading and they're biblically-based reading. So uh, let me just point listeners to those. Uh, you'll be able to get a hold of copies of those books at elizabethkendall.com. That's elizabethkendall.com. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, serving as Director of Advocacy at Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom, and an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth, always so good getting your insights, and we won't get to talk again before Christmas. So the happiest, holiest, merriest Christmas for you and your family. Uh, may it be filled with Christ and uh, all of the beautiful things that he brings into a family. And uh, and so uh, wonderful having you on a number of times through this year. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. And thank you, Neil, and I look forward to talking to you in the new year sometime. We certainly will. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.